0: On a grass field in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a large swath of newly erected tents flap in the breeze. Slightly rigid from the cold December air, white clouds hang oppressively over the sky. In earlier times, these tents could have belonged to the indigenous Native American tribes who once inhabited the region. Tribes like the Wichita, Osage, Kiowa, or Kickapoo, but the year is actually 1921. The grass field is surrounded by sidewalks. American citizens stroll and drive past the field, gazing at the tents. A black child emerges from one, followed by his father. Together, the man and his son walk down the road. Hand in hand, they approach the husks of burned-down buildings. They're surrounded by ashen, hollowed-out shells, city blocks filled with ruins. The father stops, and his son sullenly looks at the architectural corpse in front of them. Its embers are still warm from the fire that killed it as ash seeps into the air. This used to be their home, this used to be their district, this used to be a place called Greenwood, at least until the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. Welcome to Do You Know, a podcast project produced with our small majority and hosted by me, Corey Cal Nguyen. Do You Know, narratively retells the forgotten, ignored, and hidden stories of anti-blackness, women, and people of color in the racial history of America. May 30th, Memorial Day, 1921. Before the tents, and prior to the burned buildings, the citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma go about their day as is normal for a large urban city of the early 20th century. Wagons and early automobiles line the roads, carrying milk and mail. Under the presence of Jim Crow segregation, mounted signs that declare whites or coloreds only, litter the entrances for public utilities and stores. Passing by these signs and shops a 19 year old black man strides down Main Street. This is Dick Roland. Once an orphan with his two sisters, Roland was adopted by his current family and raised by them in Tulsa. He played basketball at the local Booker T. Washington High School before dropping out to begin work as a shoe shiner at a parlor on Main Street. But right now, Roland feels the call of nature. He exits the parlor and walks into a multi-story complex called the Drexel Building, whose top-floor bathroom is the only approved restroom for black workers on Main Street. Operating the elevator is a 17-year-old white teenager named Sarah Page. She watches Roland enter. He'd used this elevator before, and she'd operated it for him in the past. By all accounts, this was a routine interaction, something they had done before, and should have continued doing without incident. But what happens next will change both their lives and Tulsa, Oklahoma, forever. Without any other direct eyewitnesses, no one truly knows the exact string of events. But as soon as Roland enters the elevator, something happens, and Sarah Page lets out a scream. Roland, panicked and confused in understanding the appearance of a black man near a screaming white woman, flees from the Drexel building. A white store clerk, hearing Paige's outburst, looks out and watches Roland sprint away from the building. The clerk immediately alerts the police, claiming Roland had assaulted Paige. And in the span of seconds, Dick Roland is now a wanted man. There is controversy surrounding what really happened in the elevator. Most historians theorize that Roland tripped and accidentally grabbed Paige's arm, causing her scream. But others speculate a deeper intent. There existed the possibility that Paige and Roland had been engaging in a romantic relationship and had been caught. Since the incident occurred on Memorial Day, most businesses on Main Street had been closed, Neither Paige nor Roland needed to come into work. But there is no hard evidence of this relationship. Just historical speculation. But theory or not, the consequences of this incident spiraled out of control almost immediately. The local police tracked down Paige. There's no documentation of her statement. Only a confirmation that Roland grabbed her arm but Page denied to pursue any legal action, explicitly telling the officers she did not want to press charges against Roland. The officers, however, still felt a need to apprehend and question him. Roland had fled to his mother's home in Greenwood, and for good reason. Greenwood was a special place in Oklahoma. Almost like the resurrected spirit of Wilmington, Greenwood was known as Black Wall Street, since its population, workforce, and commercial business owners were entirely black men and women. Greenwood achieved such a status because of a man named O.W. Gurley, a wealthy black businessman from Arkansas. He purchased the land for the purpose of establishing a thriving safe haven for the black community, and thrive it did. As the land developed into a city, and Jim Crow enforced harsher policies of segregation. Black families were legally prevented or socially intimidated from purchasing goods from white-owned businesses. But this meant that money stayed within Greenwood. Black people bought from black businesses, creating a sustainable, equitable cash flow for Black Wall Street. So successful was the Greenwood district that it began to expand and grow outward but as is a common theme of early America. With black success comes white resentment and racial anger. Soon, as Greenwood's expansions pushed into white districts, Greenwood business owners began to receive racist, threatening letters from whites, demanding that they, quote, stay in their spot and know their place. Tensions only grew into the 1920s and proved to be the historical powder keg to Dick Roland's unwitting spark a day later after the incident officers had picked up Roland in Greenwood and taken him in for questioning but what began as a quiet investigation for the officers quickly spiraled into a fight for their lives the local newspaper the Tulsa Tribune quickly grabbed the story of Roland and Page and released a front page article falsely claiming without any evidence that police had arrested Roland for assaulting Page. Angered by the article and already holding racial resentment, a mob of several hundred white men headed for the county jail with the intention of ripping Roland from police custody for a lynching. The police established a defensive front. White mob members and officers argued and clashed with Tulsa Sheriff begging the mob to go home as night fell. Nearby in Greenwood, the community had learned of the threat to Roland's life. Some, being recently returned World War I veterans, chose to arm themselves and head down to defend him. And so, a group of around 60 armed black men descended upon the county jail, approaching the hundreds of white men trying to get in. There was no immediate violence, simply tense standoffs as the black men offered their help to the sheriff who refused them. The clashing conflict became louder and more tense as the night went on, and more black men were arriving from Greenwood. And yet, despite literally attacking a government building to illegally kill an innocent man, the entirely white mob interpreted the mere gathering of armed black people as a quote racial uprising, and many went home to fetch their own guns. A group of them even tried to raid the local National Guard outpost for weapons. With the white mob now returning, guns in hand, the black men offered again to aid the sheriff, who again turned them down. And it was at this point that two men, one from each group, became intertwined in a scuffle, resulting in the firing of a weapon. That errant shot triggered total and unabated warfare in the streets of an American city. The white mob fired into the black crowd, who returned a volley at them. Quickly, the groups dispersed and firefights were breaking out through Tulsa. These skirmishes continued through the night and early morning of June 1st, eventually becoming centered around the Frisco train tracks, which separated Greenwood from the white districts. White men in cars would speed through Greenwood, shooting at any black citizen they could see who would shoot back at them in return. At around 1 a.m., the white mob had begun using lit turpentine balls to set Greenwood's homes and businesses ablaze. Local firemen arrived to try and put out the fires but were held at gunpoint by the white mob, who prevented them from intervening to save Greenwood. With the aid of night, the black citizens prevented any intrusion into Greenwood by the white rioters. But daybreak would prove to be their downfall. Around 5 a.m., as the sun rose, white rioters charged into Greenwood, looting stores and homes, rounding up black families to be arrested, as the police had actually deputized some of the white rioters attacking Greenwood. And in the distance, A cacophony of engines hums closer through the sky. White pilots had taken off from a local airfield and were flying above Greenwood, dropping explosives that exacerbated the fires already burning. The violence and hatred did not just stop with black citizens. The white rioters accosted and attacked upper middle class white homes and businesses, ones that they knew employed black people. The mob demanded that they hand over their black employees. Many did, and those who didn't found their homes and businesses desecrated. Overwhelmed, the black families who still could fled the district. With no fire department assistance and no black citizens left to defend it, Greenwood was bombed and burned into the ground. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be Dick Rowland, sitting in his cell, hearing the sounds of bombs and smelling the burning buildings. The Tulsa police put him at the top floor of the county jail to keep him safe from the white mob. And I don't know if that cell had a window, but if it did, he had a front row seat for the destruction of his home. Stuck there, only capable of praying for the safety of his mother and sisters, and all of this over a misplaced step and an awkward grab. The National Guard would not arrive until 9 a.m., much too late to prevent any further damage. Tulsa was placed under martial law for three days in order to quell the violence and anger. But Greenwood's embers, once called Black Wall Street, burned as the district lay leveled for the white terrorist rioters. So chaotic were the events of that night, newspapers could not agree on a consistent count for the lives lost, which was worsened when it was revealed that an unknown amount of black bodies were carried off by the white terrorists in trucks to be dumped in unmarked mass graves. The Red Cross estimated anywhere from 55 to 300 dead, but refused to submit an official report No one could find those other bodies, and so now no one can know an actual number. Governor James Robertson ordered an investigation into the incident. 27 cases were heard and in front of an all-white grand jury, despite more than 85 individuals being indicted. Not a single person was charged for any of the deaths or destruction In Greenwood. A committee of local business owners and civic community leaders met to raise money to help rebuild Greenwood and Judge Jay Martin, a former mayor of Tulsa, spearheaded the initiative promising at a rally. Tulsa can only redeem herself from the countrywide shame and humiliation into which she is today plunged by complete restitution and rehabilitation of the destroyed Black Belt. The rest of the United States must know that the real citizenship of Tulsa weeps at this unspeakable crime. And it will make good the damage, so far as it can be done, to the last penny. But no money ever came. Instead, white city planners and industrial barons saw an opportunity to seize Greenwood's land for commercial expansion. Using their wealth, they convinced the city to pass a fire ordinance that prevented the black citizens from rebuilding their homes, hoping to force them to sell the land. This ordinance was appealed and sent to the Oklahoma Supreme Court, but during the lengthy complex legal battle to overturn the ordinance, the residents of Greenwood, nearly 10,000 people, were still homeless. Tulsa's solution was to offer them tents. And so, in a modern urban U.S. city, during the winter of 1921, innocent citizens put out by the actions of terrorists were forced to live in tents in encampments. That's almost an impressive level of indifference and cruelty. Further intrusions by white industry leaders and real estate barons working with the city prevented effective rehabilitation by outside organizations, like the Red Cross. Tulsa officials not only refused to help their black citizens, but intervened against others administering aid as well. And much like Wilmington, Tulsa massacre simply vanished into history. The Tulsa Tribute destroyed the physical article they wrote that sparked the White Riot. Only digital copies still remain. No contemporary official historical effort was made to preserve the memory of the violence done by the white crowd. Only false accounts and vague accusations of Greenwood residents starting the fight which is wrong. This created a dichotomous history for Tulsa, one divided by racial barriers. As the decades passed into nearly a century, The white rioters, never legally punished for their actions, went back to their normal lives, having children who would never know of the violence they were capable of, and perhaps were raised on the same racist values. And for the black citizens of Tulsa, it was a painful memory that many were denied closure as the bodies of their loved ones were never found, or their family's business never got to reopen, or they never got the chance to rebuild their home. For one side, it was business as usual. And for the other, nothing was ever the same. But despite their circumstances, black citizens refused to let the memory of the Tulsa Massacre die. Mary E. Jones Parrish, a black teacher and Tulsa Massacre survivor, spent a year gathering anecdotes and eyewitness accounts from other survivors and published her book, Events of the Tulsa Massacre, the first book about the Tulsa Massacre. Lauren L. Gill, a World War II veteran, wrote the first academic thesis about the Tulsa Massacre. And through their effort, the truth of Tulsa remained alive long enough that in 1996, an official commission funded by the state legislature of Oklahoma, assembled to create a report that would detail the actual events of the massacre and suggest repertory actions for the city of Tulsa to bestow justice and peace for the black citizens. After five long years, the report was released in 2001, and in response, the city of Tulsa created a scholarship fund for descendants of Greenwood, constructed a monument commemorating the events and planned economic developments for the Greenwood District. But despite this progress, state legislatures deny the need for the direct economic reparations as called for in the report, citing them as, quote, unnecessary. Progress continues on the back of activists and calls for action to bring justice for those lost in the massacre. As recently as October of 2020, the search for the missing remains, which had been ongoing since 1997, unearthed an unmarked mass grave in Tulsa, possibly revealing some of the bodies taken away by the white rioters that night. And in the wake of the new wave of social justice activism caused by the murder of George Floyd, the Human Rights Watch organization, on the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre, called for the need for direct reparations to black citizens in a report called The Case for Reparations in Tulsa, a human's right argument. And while there have been other developments like the announcements of several documentaries planning to release about Greenwood and the massacre, I believe the case for reparations and its renewed importance among the community are the most important steps for true restorative justice. I am happy the city built a park with a monument that commemorates the tragic events and the lives lost. I am happy that the state awarded the 118 known survivors of the massacre a golden medal. And I'm happy that the Tulsa mayor in 2001, Kathy Taylor, apologized to black citizens for the city's failure. When we return to the idea that entire black families lost homes, businesses, and some even their own lives. What do these symbolic gestures actually do? What tangible effect do they have to right the wrongs that have been done? Black people don't need an apology, an acknowledgement to know what happened to them was wrong. They've always known. And as Malcolm X said, the white man will try to satisfy us with symbolic victories, rather than economic equity and justice. These medals and parks and speeches, they're not meant to correct wrongs. They're ways for white people and those unaffected to feel better about themselves, to alleviate themselves of guilt by demonstrating the bare minimum instead of pursuing justice at its maximum. So what is justice at its most fair? It's reparations. To give to communities now what was denied to them in the past. That is fair. That is right. And we've done it before. When Americans locked away Japanese-American citizens just because they looked like an enemy overseas, we awarded them reparations. But when a city allows an entire black district to be burned down, deputizing white terrorists, and then actively resists its rebuilding effort, we can't do justice here? To deny black people reparations, whether for Tulsa, Wilmington, or even slavery itself, while trying to provide symbolic gestury, is hypocritical. You cannot downcry systemic racism and economic inequality if you refuse to help dismantle it direct action. The Tulsa Massacre shows us not only the dangers of systemic racism and how it can explode to inflict violence upon black people, but also in how that system can defend itself by denying the truth of that violence to downplay its part in history and therefore further elongate the time it takes for justice to be enacted. We are approaching the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And I hope by that time, after an entire century of progress, we will have learned that it takes direct action, not medals and apologies, to enact true justice. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Do You Know? A collaborative storytelling project from our small majority. Our Small Majority is an independent social justice podcast focused on the fight for equality and civil rights. You can listen to other episodes of Do You Know? as well as the other shows within OSM on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A special thank you to our composer, Jamie Pongan, my editor, Elias Diacampo, and the founders of Our Small Majority, Matthew Goryuchkovsky and Christian Black. This has been Corey Cowan, host of Do You Know? and I'll see you next time.